maybe as a pro-life movement, maybe as Christians, we don't talk enough about adoption and make it enough of a priority. Um, the practicalities, the needs. Um, so trying to do a bit of that. Um, and in particular this week, we'll have some focus to some additional focus on the foster care system and how to keep kids out of the foster care system, how to get them out. Um, uh, but, uh, but all part of a, this broader conversation we're, we're trying to have. Um, so with that, I wanted to uh, just quickly introduce Tina Andrews, who is the CEO of Adore Children and Family Services, a foster care agency here in this area. Um, she's been a teacher, she's an attorney, um, and has also some personal foster experience as well. Um, we also have Paul Mulligan, who's come um, flown in from Arizona, um, and uh, he's the CEO of Catholic Charities there. He's also been um, in the Navy, 70 years of active duty, and he and his wife, um, Michelle, founded the Gentle Refuge Crisis Pregnancy Center in Guam when, um, when you were serving over there, um, among other things, and, and other biographical details will come out as, as we're, we're talking. And Taryn Bragdon, I'm so happy you flew in as well today. Um, the, the CEO of the Foundation for Government Accountability, and and as that um, has a has a project um, that that uh, tries to keep kids out of the foster care system. But again, that'll that'll all come out as as we talk. Um, Tina, can I start with you? Um, each of our panelists will will um, talk for a few minutes about um, about what brings them here tonight. Why why they're uh, experts in this area who can help us uh, uh, talk through this a little bit more and, and, and hopefully make some, some more progress about priorities and, and, and other things. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll have introductory uh, uh, remarks um, and then uh, a little conversation and then take some questions from the audience. And this, this uh, panel is being live streamed. And I have to say, um, in the last two weeks, we've gotten um, multiple thousands of, of views of, of this, uh, these panel discussions. I'm really excited to know that this has a life beyond um, uh, one hour near the White House, you know, um, three Monday nights. So um, looking forward to the continuing conversation as people watch things online as well. Mm-hmm. Tina, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, as you mentioned, I'm with Adore Children and Family Services. Um, Adore is a foster care um, agency. Um, we provide therapeutic foster care as well. We also promote fostering to adopt, um, which what I understand is, and what I know, is the cheapest way to adopt a child. Um, our agency is a small agency, um, and one of the things uh, that we go by is the words of Mother Teresa in being a small agency is to never worry about the numbers, help one person at a time, and always start with the person next to you. Okay, So as a small agency, we, we try to provide more intensive personal services for our families and our children. Um, in fostering, you have to go through a lot of training. Um, we send our parents through at least 40 hours of training initially, and then they have ongoing training every single month. We have a training, and we have a foster parent support group. Um, so we, place, we license our foster parents, we place the children in the home, then we monitor uh, the placement, we support the families and the children, we do case management. Uh, as a therapeutic agency, a lot of our children sometimes come in with uh, needing a lot of emotional and behavioral services. Um, so we provide all of that, or we 
uh, do the case management and make sure that they receive those services. We monitor those services in addition to make sure that those services are working for the children and for the families. Because sometimes you can have all the services in the world, but um, if everybody's coming in and asking the same questions and not um, uh, working together in order so that the families and the children's, and, excuse me, so that the families and the children can reach their goals um, and utilize the services in the best capacity that they can, and you, you won't have anything there. Um, some of our, wor our worries. Uh, I'm here today to, again, promote fostering to adopt. Um, some of the worries that I have about adoption, straight adoption, not through foster care, is that one, training. Um, I don't know if there's any consistency about training that, that uh, adoptive parents have. Um, then there's matching. You know, sometimes uh, families might be matched with a child and not quite know the background or not have the chance to determine, like, is this truly a good match? Can we really handle this child? Um, with straight adoption, um, I'm not aware that there's a lot of support for families that adopt. Um, sometimes there's little to no follow-up, depending on how you, if, whether, if you go through an agency or if you go through a lawyer. Um, if you go through a lawyer's office and adopt, um, I don't think that there's any training or follow-up uh, in order to ensure that the adoption placement is going well. Um, then there's that issue of rehoming. Um, that's a really big issue. Um, I've attended some conferences and things, and I didn't realize what a big issue rehoming was. And if you don't know, rehoming is when a family adopts a child and they realize that they can't handle the child, they might go through an online service um, and find a family that might want to take the child. They might try to turn the child back to the agency if they um, receive the child from the Department of Social Services. There's all kinds of things that happen to children that adoptive families all of a sudden decide, I can't handle this. So. Um, adoptive families sometimes, again, one of the, the other worries is that to sum up is that they, adoptive families may not have the skills. They may want a child, and that's all they think about is they want a child, but they may not have the skills, the tools, or the support system to maintain um, their new child. So what encourages me about fostering to adopt is that um, as a, an agency, a small agency, where a good number of our families come um, specifically to adopt, um, and I encourage it with a, with a lot of agencies um, in our area to do, um, is that through fostering to adopt, you get the initial training. Um, like I said, we put our parents through at least 40 hours of training. We do background checks. We have ongoing training. Um, we'll place a child in your home, and we monitor the placement. We supervise the, the placement. We support you. Um, you get all of this. Sometimes uh, some of our families have fostered their children for a full 16 months before they actually went through an adoption. Um, so you have the opportunity um, to not throw the child away. And I say throw the child away because that's what it is. Um, we've had a number of children come through foster care that were at one time adopted. Um, I was really shocked and surprised to see that. Um, I read about it, um, but when I actually see it coming through our agency, which is a small agency, so we don't expect to get you know um, everything, but we do <laughs> because it's happening all the time. 
Um, I mentioned earlier that, that one of the big impetuses to us doing Fostering to Adopt was the story um, year, a couple of years ago now uh, about a Russian family that returned, not a Russian family, a, a family that adopted a Russian boy and put him back on the plane and sent him back to Russia. Um, and that really stuck with me. That really stuck with me. So now when I see families coming in and saying that they want to adopt, um, I highly encourage fostering to adopt because we provide the services and the support so that that never has to happen. You know, at the end of the day, if they decide that, well, we really can't handle this, this isn't what we thought, then we still have our arms wrapped around that child. And with a small agency, everyone knows everyone. All the families know each other. All the children know each other. And we're hopefully able to, you know, move the child on into another place and not make that child feel like one day, oh, I finally have my forever home. And then the next day, you know, um, someone doesn't want me again. So, um, thank you. Very good. Thank you. Tina liked the comments. Thank you. So I'm Paul Mulligan, um, the CEO of Catholic Charities in the Diocese of Phoenix. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Catholic Charities was established in the uh, country about 1910. Uh, in Phoenix, it was 1933. Actually, our first hired employee was a child welfare director back in 1933 in the Great Depression. So children have always been something that are close to the church and close to um, the actual origins of Catholic Charities. Um, I also have a background, really you'd, you'd call it kind of pro-life work, really started from my early high school days, getting involved and so forth. So for me, um, discussion around adoption, very natural one. Um, it's always been something I've been fairly educated in and so forth. Um, we, my wife and I, while I was stationed in the Navy, had the opportunity to get involved in establishing a center overseas in Guam. And uh, there were three abortion clinics, but there was no help center. So a uh, beautiful center called General Refuge Pregnancy Center. And it became kind of a safe haven for women that were exploring what options they had. And if you were in Guam without family, you really didn't have anything else. So this was a real uh, safe harbor for, for women. Uh, and through actually the operations that were there, we became an adoptive family ourselves. So we have two, two of our three children are adopted. Um, it's really comfortable language in our house to talk about adoption. We, we really have from the earliest age. So um, have had experience in private adoption on that level. And uh, that was uh, something that I guess you could say really uh, tuned me into to the sort of challenges on the individual level that a, that a woman may have. It seems like such an easy solution for people on the outside to look at adoption. Oh, well, you know, you're pregnant and you can't handle you know, the responsibilities of pregnancy, it's not a good time for you, the parent. Well, adoption, of course. And there's a, you know, sort of a simplicity about that. It makes so much sense from the outside. But when you actually get into the inner workings of it, it's a really, really challenging, complicated, messy situation. Um, you're really talking about some strong issues at play here. Uh, we had a conversation at lunch today with a number of other folks around the room talking about sort of the pro-life perspective on adoption. And very interesting. Um, Something you find working in pregnancy centers, yeah, the language is very telling. Um, a woman that's uh, in there maybe having a pregnancy test and, and some counseling, um, she will use the language around abortion. You know, uh, um, She just talks about a termination of pregnancy or whatever she's been told. When the subject of adoption comes up, if it comes up, usually there's this really strong pushback that says, I, I could never give my baby away. 
So sort of the disconnect you almost have, even with the language that we use, is uh, it's rather interesting of kind of where people are on this. So, you know, when it's um, really in my body, it's my right, it's my choice. Um, it's not thought of the same as a baby. But when you actually start talking about the imagery of adoption and actually, you know, having a child that you would place with another family, it's really a baby, and it's my baby. So um, there's a lot of really strong forces at work here, maternal things that kind of kick in, et cetera. I think, uh, first of all, maybe a couple things just on language. We, um, we use the word uh, place for adoption or make an adoption plan, and uh, just, just to sort of get that out there because we still um, hear a lot about um, give my baby away or put a baby up for adoption and so forth. That's sort of older language, and it, it usually has a fairly negative social connotation, but it's a child is a gift, and um, so we, we really um, love the power of language when you, can, when you can be aware of that. I've worked in the church for quite a while since getting out of the Navy. I've been, been real involved in this really since about 97. I was still in the Navy, but really started working for the church. And uh, one thing that you kind of find, and, and maybe you've had this experience yourself, um, there tends to be, and it's unfortunate this is the case, but really two poles that sort of evolve within the work of social concerns, et cetera. And that is kind of the what's traditionally called like the peace and justice side and the marriage, life, family side. Really, it's all on the same side, but you tend to kind of see that folks will gravitate towards one or the other. So it might be, you know, refugees or immigrants or, or uh, income equality could be something like that. Or it's the abortion issue and, and life mm-hmm. and adoption and, and these things. Um, and again, that's unfortunate that that's sort of the landscape that a lot of us step into when you, when you get into this world. But I think adoption, what's really beautiful about it is that it has that potential really to be a bridge issue in many ways, to speak positively about the gift of human life, uh, about the blessing of mothers. Those are all some really wonderful things that adoption sort of can introduce without going political because you really can't get a lot, around a lot of these life issues without immediately finding yourself in the middle of a big political fight that you didn't start, and nobody really dialogues anyways. So um, this, is, this is, I think, a, a wonderful way anyways to witness to the beauty of life, the gift of motherhood, the gift of fatherhood, and to really show reverence for, for those things. Um, I like Catholic Charities, for example. We've got a strong adoption history. Uh, we've been involved in this. A lot of people have experiences around the country when they hear I'm with Catholic Charities will tell me, you know, immediately that, oh, yeah, we, we had a sibling that was adopted through Catholic Charities. It's a real strong connection, actually, with Catholic Charities and adoption. But I actually love how Catholic Charities is involved in all those issues. So not a right issue, not a left issue, not one pole or the other, but it's really the social teaching of the church. It's the gospel that calls us to love. Um, maybe a couple comments of what we see working. So in Arizona, we have a um, what you would call a foster care crisis. Things seem to be trending the, the right way, but in a five-year period, while the nation was generally finding that the foster care issue was, was declining, the number of kids in out-of-home out of care um, was going down, in Arizona it was still going up, and it was largely due to kind of a law enforcement mentality on the front end, really, really stringent requirements that would easily pull a child from a home without the support on the back end of the families that were waiting, that were trained, that had been recruited and licensed and so forth. Um, we're starting to trend in the right direction, but I think a lot of that is actually to do with what I would say is a really important step here coming from a, a, a church or a faith perspective, and that is the community of faith really has a responsibility here to step into the breach and to play a role positively uh, around this. Um, again, having, having come from what you would call a pro-life background in a lot of ways, um, I've heard those arguments 
that have been kind of levied against you saying, you know, well, you only care about the baby till it's born. Well, I can assure you that's not the case. But, you know, when, when that's what people are talking a lot about, um, you can see where some people maybe come to that conclusion. This is a beautiful way when you start talking about adoption and foster care to really demonstrate witness to life, you know, those challenges after the baby is born. We're right there. We're people of life and love, and we support. So this is where I think the faith community can come in really strong. Um, it's, it's important to note that actually our fundamental identity as Catholics and Christians is adoption. That is actually our relationship with God the Father is as his adopted sons and daughters. So if anybody should be able to speak about adoption well and with a lot of credibility, it should be Catholics and Christians because that is who we are. Um, just a, a quick story that in our home, so I have uh, our, our girls are now... Um, the youngest is 17, going off to University of Mary in Bismarck, and the uh, middle child, or, or second uh, in line, is um, off to the Air Force here very shortly. Um, but they've been playing together, and they had different birth moms and so forth. But just from the earliest ages, we've, we were able to see them become great friends as sisters, etc. But what was kind of special in our home with, with the five of us, mom, dad, and three kids, was we would talk about um, adoption really early, and we would say things, uh, you know, well, well, Mommy's adopted, and, and Daddy's adopted, and John Paul's adopted, and Faith was adopted two times, right? She was adopted into God's family and our family. And Maria, two times, right? God's family and our family. And I think just getting really comfortable with that whole identity fundamentally would really help us in our work to try and engage the faith community, because this is who we are. Um, so it's just a, it's really about living out our own identity. I think some of the things that are missing then are probably more of those parish level engagements. You may see some parishes that may talk about this, but the reality is that this is not something you hear very often at church. is a is a good, healthy conversation. Maybe it comes up in January around a, a you know a life issue or respect life Sunday possibly, but it's just not something we talk about very often. So I think more on that would be really good. Uh, but connecting the dots to our identity is, is a great thing. There's all sorts of great, beautiful scripture around adoption. So if you haven't done that sometime, just Google adoption and scripture and, and, and just you know, meditate a little bit on those beautiful things. It's a story of God's people. From the very beginning, he's wanted to bring them into his family. And so he sends his own son, and we get adopted through that son. So uh, how about I'll, I'll hold it there, and we can have some more discussion later. Thank you. Great. It's uh, really enjoyable to be with you here today. It's honestly a rare treat that I have to talk about this issue uh, publicly because I come at the adoption and foster care issue with a variety of perspectives, both from a policy perspective, from a personal perspective, and then actually uh, in practice with some of the organizations uh, that I lead. Um, it's amazing how life works. Uh, I'm originally from Maine, even though I live in Florida now, and 21 years ago I was elected to the Maine legislature and was assigned to the Human Services Committee. So right out of college, I uh, went to work on uh, foster care and adoption issues and had this great opportunity to go to work uh, while I was in the legislature uh, for a child welfare agency. And the great thing about being a young person is you don't appreciate kind of a couple things. Uh, you don't appreciate your metabolism, uh, and you <laughs> don't appreciate life experience. Uh, but these two experiences of being in the legislature and going to work for a child welfare agency gave me just these incredible life experiences. And while I was at the child welfare agency, we started up the first major uh, public-private partnership for foster care adoptions in Maine, uh, and I oversaw program development. Uh, and so we got that program started. <clears throat> Fast forward four years um, after that, I got married. And like a lot of married couples, my wife and I struggled with fertility. 
little did we realize that infertility would be such a blessing in our lives. Um, in a period of just three and a half years, we adopted uh, four babies, uh, a boy, a girl, and then twin boys. Um, we, I was chatting a little bit before the event, we adopted all of our kids uh, internationally, and for a while we had four kids under four. So it was a really busy household. It still is a busy household, just in different ways. And, and it's amazing to me what an adventure life is as a Christian. You know, I, I went to this play a couple of years ago, and uh, there's this couple talking in this play, and this older mother-in-law says, you know, life is a series of twists and turns. But if you could turn around and look back, you would see a straight line of exactly where God wanted you to be. Uh, and that's certainly been the experience in my life and my wife's life. We now, um, now I run a conservative public policy organization. We work at the state and federal level uh, on welfare and health care issues primarily. Uh, we have run a few different projects on foster care reform in the states, um, looking at some effective privatization models, but also looking at how you can align incentives so that kids remain apart from their families for the shortest amount of time possible and increase in the number of adoptions out of foster care. I can tell you out of all the different public policy issues uh, that I've worked on over the years, um, in a lot of states where $9 million organization, um, that by far foster care reform is the toughest. The forces of status quo in foster care are extremely strong. And you would think that things that are simple and easy uh, would be simple to get done, uh, but that is not the case. And so for several years, we kind of struggled with what would be the best way for us to have an impact. Uh, we had been focused on this notion of let's work in capitals and let's work on public policy reform. And that would be the best way to have the biggest impact in the shortest period of time. Um, but we found it was actually the best way to uh, be frustrated in a long period of time. And so in doing this work, we um, were introduced to this program that I'm sure is familiar to many of you. Uh, called the Safe Families Program, uh, which started in Chicago uh, in 2003 and really looks at this whole notion of rather than just reforming foster care, what if we could build this faith-based alternative to foster care and come alongside families in crisis? Because 70% of families that go into foster care do so because of neglect. It's not because of sexual abuse. It's not because of physical abuse. It's because of neglect. And oftentimes, family crisis has spiraled to the point, homelessness, substance abuse, uh, domestic violence, has spiraled to the point of criminal neglect. So we had been impressed with this model. Uh, and so we decided to start a sister charity uh, called Flourish Now. And to, at the same time that we're having this focus on capitals and public policy reform, to have this focus on churches and direct service. Uh, so we started up a local uh, Safe Families program in southwest Florida in Naples and Fort Myers. It's been incredibly successful. Uh, this year we'll serve about 450 kids. Uh, we get 60% of our referrals directly from child protective investigators. Um, all of our volunteer families, uh, none of them are paid. 92% uh, of the kids that we work with never go into foster care. Uh, parents retain their parental rights, and they come alongside these volunteer families through the church come alongside families in crisis and help them get through their crisis, but to keep the families together. We've also had cases where those families can't remain together. 
uh, and the child moves from a volunteer family to a permanent adoptive family as well. So there's a lot of different ways which that child can be kept uh, in an intact family during this period of time. Um, we found this model to be uh, incredibly successful and are looking to uh, run uh, chapters of this in other places. But at the same time, as we explored why so many of these families were coming to the attention of child protective investigators, coming to the attention of schools, community partners, we really found that economic uh, trouble started this or was the root cause or somebody losing a job. And you think of this whole spiral that happens when you don't have extended family or social capital that really probably a lot of us in the room and watching have. If many of us went through crisis, we could tap friends, family, extended family. Um, but for a lot of individuals, they don't have that social capital. So they lose their job. They can't afford to stay in their apartment. They become homeless. They're homeless. They can't take care of their kids. Their kids are at risk of foster care. So we decided, uh, we stepped back and looked at this and thought, well, maybe there's a role for the church and American compassion uh, in this root cause problem of people being out of work or needing to get back to work. Uh, Two-thirds of American Christian churches have some type of ministry focused on the poor, uh, a food pantry, a clothing uh, store, that kind of thing. But only 2% have any kind of job ministry. And so we saw a real opportunity to partner with local churches to host job fairs, to recruit volunteer job coaches and mentors, uh, to come alongside families who are out of work, uh, and many of them are out of work and unchurched, uh, and to be relevant in their life in this very specific way. Uh, and so we started uh, this program uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, it's been incredibly successful. We call it Work to Win. And it's been this great complement to the safe families and the policy endeavor, but also been a way for, I think, our Christian faith to become relevant and really tangible in people who are very hurting. Um, one of the roles that we really see as key at Flourish now is to, if this doesn't sound too odd, to organize the market. You know, if you think of the success of Uber or Expedia, it's to take people who have something to sell and connect them with people who want to buy. Well, charity is no different. We have people who are hurting, and then we have people who want to help. And churches are filled with people who want to help. But there's no way to organize them, to connect them to people who are hurting. And so that's the role that we serve uh, this year. We'll uh, help through, in four states, our uh, Work to Win program, uh, 10,000 job seekers at these uh, events at both uh, Catholic and Protestant uh, churches, and been really successful. And so one of my sort of looking back and seeing the straight line in my life is seeing how all these experiences along the way of being moved by something that is a policy issue but is kind of a separate issue, like adoption and foster care reform when I was fresh out of college, made me much more open uh, to embracing this wonderful family that God had in store for us. Uh, we, we describe ourselves as this like little Noah's Ark family. There's two of each color <laughs> in our family, uh, which really makes for lots of delightful things. Um, and then at the same time, to have really tangible work, both on the public policy side, but also on the direct service charity side, of making a meaningful difference. Because as you said, it's really about engaging with one kid, one family, one church at a time. And I think getting them to take the first step in what can be a scary, 
but incredible opportunity, which is adoption, which is foster care, which is frankly just living out, I think, our Christian duty. Thank you. Um, thank you, everyone. Um, I wanted to ask each of you um, about this foster care question in particular. Um, it applies to adoption, I think, too, um, but it's even more of a challenge on foster care. So many people just think it's an impossible situation to get yourself into, get involved in. Um, and there's even pressure. Um, you, you mentioned the lunch we were at. This was discussed. It's been discussed in, in, in previous weeks, and, and people keep voicing to me. Even you know, good Christians will give some negative pushback. Why would you want to take on those problems um, to, to parents who, who might want to bring foster children in, into, their, into their homes? Um, so how, how do you reach that hurdle? Um, Tina, do you want to start? Um, you're right. One of the things that, that I hear a lot when I speak to people about foster care and adoption, uh, the pushback is, oh, I don't want any of those bad kids. Um, which really, ooh, that's one of the things that I, I really don't like to hear. It really challenges, do you really believe that we are made in the image and likeness <laughs> of God or not, right? Right, yeah. Um, so in, in responding to that, I, I say that these children aren't bad, but they've had some bad situations, uh, had some bad things happen to them, and their response might be behavior or something. Um, but to get to bring them closer to where we need them to be or want them to be is for them to acknowledge what their boundaries are. Okay, um, so you can't make someone who thinks of children initially as bad or who sees corporal punishment as um, the only way to, you know, get a child to do what you need them to do. Uh, sometimes you can't really change that mindset because they grew up like that, and um, that's their initial reaction. So you find out where can they help? Mm. What can they do? In foster care, we always need mentors. We always need people that can um, do respite, um, take a child for a day or just an overnight visit or something like that, you know, to help um, a foster family or an adoptive family that may have some children that they need, you know, a respite for. Um, so it's trying to find out where can they, what, what are their gifts? What can they give um, if they um, have an initial reaction to, like, I, I just can't do this, I can't, you know, like if they've raised their children and a lot of people say, I can't do this again, you know, with other children, but what can you do? You know, and there's so many different ways to help, so many different ways. Paul? Yeah, um, there's such a compelling social case for getting involved in foster care. Um, the statistics that are out there are pretty, they're pretty mind-blowing. Um, somewhere in the, in the, there's a statistic that in the federal prison system, uh, roughly 75% of inmates have spent time in foster care. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you sort of realize that there's an opportunity to um, deal, deal with some of these challenges on the front end, right? When, when kids are, uh, I hate to use this expression, but, but generally they, they consider kids above seven years old as kind of unadoptable, and that's terrible to say. But that's just kind of what the statistics bear out is it's a lot harder to place these kids uh, when they get older. Um, but we've got to direct attention and support to these kids. I'm, a, I'm fairly socially conservative and so forth, but I, this is one of those issues for me, for example, that's really um, woken me up to the need to have 
support, government support, safety net, these kinds of things directed at this issue. These, this is absolutely no fault of these kids. This is a situation they were born into with mm-hmm. parents uh, that for whatever reason are, are challenged and struggling. Maybe they weren't really ready to be parents or maybe it's a drug addiction. The opioid thing is really weighing in heavy right now nationwide on these numbers. Um, but we owe it to these kids, right, to, to, to get involved and intervene early. And you start thinking about the plight of a, of a child that's been bounced from home to home to home and never gets to attach. I know in our own family, I mentioned adoption. And just a couple of months into, the, into one daughter's um, life is when we, we became the parents. And it's amazing how, how powerful those first two months of really not bonding with a birth mom were for that child. And you're talking about some kids that never get to experience the, secu- the security and safety of, of a parental bond. And they're just kind of the walking wounded. So we've got to do something. That's kind of the social case, you could say. But to really individualize it right down to what does that mean for me, as you said, as a Christian, this is just kind of our way of life. It should be pretty natural to us to, to go there. Um, I think what's – I was hinting at what's working. Um, we have a, in Arizona an organization called Arizona 127. really comes from the book of James 127, which speaks to adoption. And uh, that's a, a beautiful way to sort of challenge the faith community to get involved, make this a, a core issue for them. But what they do is they don't just try and um, go out and, and educate people to become foster parents. They also try and stir up folks to say, you know, maybe I'm not really called to do that or just at this point in our life we can't handle that demand, but we can support the families near us. And so it is stirring into action a lot of this community involvement where you do have – 10 families that are behind the one family that chooses to foster and they're finding respite care or other things that they can do to support. So that's, that's a, I think that's maybe where it starts getting at the personal level. And I think the faith community is a great place to start because I do think we have that identity I alluded to earlier. Um, and there tends to be just a lot of um, sense of duty, sense of obligation, sense you know, that you're dealing with is just the, the raw material around these churches. So it can be a really beautiful thing when somebody wants to you know, open up their home and family in a context of faith. Um, just a couple uh, specific thoughts. I, I think that one of the reasons why uh, we really embraced, from a direct service perspective, the whole Safe Families model is to expand the market of potential volunteers. When we survey individuals who sign up to be host families, this is all volunteer, they're not paid at all, uh, only 10% of those host families are interested, say they've ever been interested in being a foster parent. And that holds true for after they have a host family experience. And they uh, enjoy that experience, but it's a, a different kind of thing. They don't want to sign up for something that's open-ended. Uh, the typical amount of time the child lives with a host family is about six weeks uh, versus you know a year and a half in foster care. There's not the uh, direct government involvement, and a lot of people just don't want to have, open up their home in that kind of way. And so one of the things that I think, and Tina touched on this a little bit, is we need to have more of a continuum mindset of how can we give people different opportunities to meaningfully serve uh, and to have an impact on families in need and kids in need in their community. I think the other thing is uh, more from a messaging and marketing standpoint. You know, one of the things that we did early on when we were starting up this program is we did a variety of marketing interviews with people who had been successful, like serial hosters, if you will, uh, or people who were like super hosts. They had hosted 10, 15 kids. And we talked to them about why did you do this? What kind of conversation did you have with your spouse uh, as you were considering this? And why do you continue to do it? 
And I think that sometimes in the foster care adoption realm, we make arguments that are much more uh, based on, uh, you know, like sort of a look at Oliver Twist, isn't he sympathetic, don't you want to do something? When in reality, people's motivations are very different. What we found was the number one reason why families sign up to do this is because it's a family ministry that they can do together. Mm -hmm. Parents want to show their kids Christian compassion, but I can't open up my checkbook and say, see how compassionate we are with how we give. You have to model that. You have to you know, show that your child has to give up something in order to care for somebody they've never met before. Uh, you have to show sort of the power of love being a decision. Uh, and that has to be modeled. And so we actually changed our whole marketing material to not be focused on this sympathetic thing, to be focused on here's a brand new ministry that you can do as a family. And the last thing I would say is I, I really think that the biggest impediment uh, to widespread adoption in foster care is men. Um, and I think that that's not because men are bad, obviously. I mean, men are great. <laughs> I think that that's because men view oftentimes with adoption that they view that they're going to procreate like a little mini me. And I think women are much more open to uh, caring for a bunch of folks. Uh, and so one of the things that I've found along the way is it's really having just candid conversations, I think, from men to men about this is how to live out your Christian love. You know, I, I didn't give... Uh, conceive my wife, but I still love her. Uh, I make a decision to love all sorts of people. But for me, that was a struggle a bit to then think, okay, my family's going to be different than I imagined, and not realizing that that would be so much better than I can imagine. And as we've run into couples all throughout life who have never adopted and have never had children, I find it's most often the guy who made that decision and the women, woman who suffers the consequence. And so I think that it's very important for us as men to have very candid conversations with other men about these kinds of opportunities uh, and why they should uh, make this wonderful choice. And, and that obviously includes candid conversations, as, as you obviously have, about infertility and, and how it might, as painful as it is, it, it could be a, a great grace, um, and which you've obviously found. Absolutely. I think it's a, it really is a blessing. Like I use that in very specific ways. Um, our whole adoption experience, we have a much more amazing, a much bigger family than we would have ever had uh, if we had um, you know, sort of lived out what we were imagining uh, would be the end result of years of struggling with fertility. And I think that that's sort of the lesson of life. Um, God has in store much more amazing blessings than you could imagine, but you have to be open to it, um, and you have to be willing to take a risk. Um, I hope I'm not na naive in wanting to pursue the idea that, Paul, I, I believe you brought up, uh, that this can be common ground <laughs> um, politically, um, and even um, within a church where there are these false in many ways divides between left wing and right wing and social justice and peace of justice as you you mentioned uh, or, or pro-life and, and 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 social justice and and um so how maybe start with you paul how, how do we breach that in a in a real 
productive way. Um, because especially if, if you're in a political realm, you, you sort of have these, these attachments that are hard to break free of, but, but even just in our, in our normal lives, heaven knows we're in a very political environment right now, needless to say. But we're also in an environment where people sort of recognize that things aren't working, so maybe they're open to something new. Right, sure. Uh, well, when you step into things like foster care and you have numbers and you've, you've got uh, reports and you have things that are monitored at the state level that are kind of a concern for taxpayers or probably concern for people that have, you know, more of a fiscal orientation, um, you know, as I said, that social case about saying that um, this is one of those issues that's really responsibly dealt with up front for a number of reasons. Um, you pay for it now or you can pay really big later, right? Uh, so that that alone maybe creates a bit of um, a common ground there, just to kind of look at you know it looks like we we need to act. Um, I think that I think that the tough thing is whenever you get around, as I said, whenever you get around the life issue, and I just mean that as in prenatal life. You know, there's a lot of really interesting dynamics that go on there because uh, we just haven't really we just haven't really reconciled this as a country. Right? When, you, when you're pregnant and you want to be pregnant, I can't wait to show you the ultrasound of my baby. Mm -hmm. um, if that's not the case, then you know, this is one of those things we just handle. And so you're stepping into this area that's really tough. Then you throw in these things of, of just the stigma oftentimes that adoption is received from, take television programming, right? It's really hard to get any quality TV around there that just shows your story. Mm -hmm or my story, or these other wonderful examples of adoption, your story, uh, foster care, and so forth. Um, they've always got to go for the sensational. And somebody said at lunch today, you know, they don't cover the planes that land successfully. It's always the <laughs> crashes that, that make the news, right? And so there's, there's a lot of that kind of that's been created around this issue that just makes it tough to get near. So people that are, that are adopted, you know, what, what should be hard to, to bring up about that? And yet, um, you know, you find even in people's own families that, oh, the adopted one is treated differently. So there's a lot that you have to work through. But I think that, that same, for the same reason, there's a lot of potential entry points that you can engage um, families and communities around this issue um, that don't have to swing back to these tougher political issues or at least issues that are always politicized. So I, I think that adoption, for the beauty of it, um, you know, is, is one of those issues that potentially kind of can go beyond the politics. We can work on some common ground issues. We can work on things from a fiscal standpoint or a social wellness standpoint or respect for fathers or mothers or whatever the politicians want to emphasize this particular campaign. But it kind of has a lot of those things going for it. So I like to think anyways that uh, if somebody were to say, I'm pro-choice, um, maybe, maybe the challenge there is to really say, well, what does that really mean to say I'm pro-choice? Uh, I guess that would mean I would support a woman's choice to place for adoption. And that's, that's a good challenge there. And I think for folks on pro-life side uh, to really evaluate what it means to be pro-life, I mean, this gospel needs to be lived, and it's not a comfortable one. It's going to be challenged. It's going to be full of challenge, but, you know, but the rewards are out of this world, as they say. Uh, so we, we, we should have lots of, of, of potential there anyways to have some discussions with people that may not agree on certain terms that could unite around adoption as a good for society, as a good for families, and certainly is a good for the kids. Tina, is that particularly the case with foster care, that it should be this common ground issue 
I mean, it do, it's not an abortion issue, really, you know? I absolutely believe it should be a common ground um, because the facts are that um, there are um, half a million children in foster care. Um, so something has to be done about those children. So I don't think it should be politicized one way or the other how we deal with it. Something has to be done. You know, um, the statistics say, we talked about earlier about 50% of the children that age out or come out of foster care um, come out worse than what they, than their families were when they came into foster care. And what does that say about us? You know, so I don't think it should be an issue that should be, you know, pulled apart. I mean, we have it. It's here. It's in our own backyards. It's across the country. You know, so we have to stand up and do something about the children that need our help. Taryn, have you seen bipartisan uh, coming together on this issue? Uh, we have. Uh, we worked uh, to get legislation passed to provide sort of a statutory framework for uh, Safe Families programs to operate within certain states because, as you might imagine, there's a real tendency to overregulate it or to treat it like uh, foster care light. And so we wanted to provide a statutory framework and uh, got those laws passed in 11 additional states. They're in 15 states now protecting that. And you would think that would be easy. Uh, we're going into our third year of trying to get a law passed in Florida. Uh, and I would say that uh, certain lawyers are the impediment to uh, getting good things done, as uh, way back to Christ Day found. Uh, but uh, I think, you know, we, you still do it, not because it's easy, but because it's important. And I think that this is one of these issues that you have to just recognize that it's going to take engagement. It's going to take rational conversations among well-intentioned people with different points of view. And it's going to take time. And so you just embrace that expectation of that reality and then trudge forward. It's no different than life. Uh, it, you know, anything worth doing is hard work, um, but it doesn't mean you don't do it. Kathy, can I jump in with one more thing? I think there's a challenge for the state as well in this area, and that is um, to really look at you know, the, the major players that are out there. There's a lot of faith-based organizations this issue taps into their faith, whether it be Christian or Jewish or whatever it might be. But the faith-based entities are really strong players in, in this arena, and they're the ones that are recruiting the families and making these compelling cases and have a lot of this kind of grassroots work that they're organizing. Um, but the, the states, you know, if I can say, I think the states got to recognize, too, we, we know it's a diverse marketplace, and certainly attitudes are changing a lot around building families, so you, you've seen a lot more around the same-sex couples and so forth, right, that are, that are out there. I think we can recognize it's, it is a diverse, pluralistic society, et cetera. Um, so you're going to have, in, in many ways, you have a marketplace that caters to many needs. It's a chilling prospect that, you know, on the basis of um, conscience or of uh, some of these, you know, faith-based beliefs, that you can get knocked right out of this marketplace as an agency or as a provider um, on, on the basis that you won't serve, you know, what they say, serving all. You may have a, a, a disposition towards, obviously, what a concept of family is or of marriage, et cetera. And, and I would really hope that somehow in this common ground piece, the respect that we can have in a pluralistic society would allow those faith-based organizations like Catholic Charities and others, you know, to continue to, to, to serve um, and not be, you know, squeezed out uh, because we don't do it necessarily the way that the secular government wants it done. Um, so I, I mention that because it is a real threat and it's a concern that's growing. 
One of the frustrations, of course, is that it, it's the planes crashing in many ways model that you, um, reality that you mentioned. We, we only hear about the clashes, whether it's a religious liberty clash. Adoption is, is almost always recently only in the news because of um, religious liberty battles. Um, but, but then people don't understand why this religious liberty conscience battle is so important because they don't appreciate all the faith-based uh, uh, characters um, who, are, who are serving and who we need um, to, uh, to, to help step into the breach and, and, and whatnot. Um, can I open this to uh, questions? We have a microphone coming to you. Thank you all so much. I work with the Archdiocese of Washington. Um, one of foster care is, in, is something we want to become more involved in, but one of the great struggles that we are facing is, as you mentioned, Paul, here in D.C. there is a law that uh, agencies that place children must place with all families, in, including um, homosexual, homosexual couples. Um, and so um, given, given you know, the beliefs of the Catholic Church, we aren't able to um, provide foster care services anymore. But what is a way that we can be still involved? What are, what are suggestions you have for that? You want to jump in here oh. as a local? Did you want to? <laughs> um, the suggestions to still be involved in foster care? Well, that there's still a need. Um, as I stated before, there's still a need at all levels um, for mentors, um, respite care. Um, you know, we always have a need. Because, like I said, the children are always going to be there. Um, so I, I really don't feel comfortable with anyone being out of the market, um, although because the children are always there, so there, there needs to be someone there to help them. Okay. Um, so that makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable, but there's always a need. I think uh, the um, obviously this is where, again, what oftentimes is uh, kind of philosophical arguments that don't seem to touch the ground around religious liberty. This is a great example where they really do. And so the reason, for example, you have Catholic conferences like D.C. Catholic Conference and so forth, and the U.S. bishops really taking things up, Fortnite for Freedom, all these different things they're really doing to try and and sort of wake up the faithful to these are real threats and they really do impact the way we live the gospel. Um, so I'd, I'd say, you know, not to, not to simply go political on this, but to recognize that's where faithful citizenship really comes in and we've got to continue to give witness to our uh, right and duty to, to be able to practice our faith in the public square. Um, I do think there are ways that you can, um, you know, rally around the issue or promote it because don't forget, even though the law may be what it is here in D.C., um, being able to stir families, good faith-filled families, into the system, well, let's do that then. I mean, we may not be able to run it through the archdiocese mm -hmm. the way we want to, but we can still go out there and promote the virtues of foster care and adoption mm -hmm. as, a, as a beautiful option and maybe, you know, provide that more local support for those families. That's something, you know, we'd love to encourage to do. And isn't it true, and anybody chime in, uh, w once the, the church, the parish, um, um, the community now has experience with children who are in foster care, knows what this looks like as more more than a box checking while well, I gave a donation to a cardinal's appeal or something. So someone must take care of this. You know, I've done my part, the opening the checkbook thing. Um, once it becomes real, real people, real faces, real children, it, it just, it changes the conversation entirely. So that seems to be many in many ways where we, where we need to focus our attention, right? 
Yeah, I think so. The only thing I would add is um, you can kind of fight the man or you can make the man irrelevant. And uh, I think that's that's why I think when government shuts down, there are other ways to serve outside of government. And you don't need to play by their rules. You can play by God's rules. And there's lots of different ways to minister to families, including ministering to families upstream before they actually hit the doors of the child protective system. And I think one of the things that's been really challenging for a lot of Christian ministries is we have allowed government to set the parameters of we operate in this way or we operate if government will fund in this way. But those are conditions you put on yourself. And so it's just looking for other opportunities to serve. You know, there's uh, groups like DC 127 that you talked mm -hmm. about that are looking at other ways that the church can be very relevant, very flexible, but very true to itself in serving these exact same kind of families uh, with voluntary arrangements. I mean, one of the things that's really beautiful to me is that with our local program uh, in Southwest Florida, we have families who are Muslim, families who are atheist, families who are Jewish, you know, families who don't know what they are, who all specifically agree to have a devout Christian family work with them directly and to help their children directly. And it's because they care more about the end result than they do where somebody's, you know, how somebody's faith might be different from my own. And I think that's where when you get outside of government and you just engage with people one-on-one, -on -one, people are a lot more rational than government. Uh, and there's great ways to serve in that way. Other questions? Hi, good evening. Hi, good evening. Thank you so much for your comments. And I, I think I kind of identify with a lot of the things from each, each of you said. I'm a, a foster father here locally, involved with DC 127, uh, and we are getting ready to finalize the adoption of our foster daughter uh, next week. So That's it's been a, a long, arduous process, uh, and I, I identify with your comments, Ms. Andrews, about the support, um, sometimes whether you want it or not, <laughs> through the local agencies throughout the process, but it, it is important. Uh, we talked sometimes about getting people in, and a lot of people want to serve and they want to help. I guess, uh, tactically and practically, what are the best ways to kind of lower those barriers to entry for being involved in safe families or bringing meals? A lot of people say, oh, I want to do, how can I help? And there isn't sometimes always the easiest, quick way uh, to, I have a tough time finding the quickest way to give them that practical next step. For some of those people, Mr. Bragdon, you talked from some of their, your super uh, super supporters or volunteers, what are some of the hallmarks or some of the things that they said to get people involved? Um, it's a great question. Uh, and mm -hmm. part of the market research that we did looking at what are these families who are super volunteers, what do they look like? What we found, and <laughs> again, this isn't surprising when I verbalize it, but was, it was surprising when we found it, is these are families who for the most part are already serving in some capacity within the church. Uh, they tend to be families of school-aged children because of some of the comments you made about, you know, people love to be parents. They don't tend to want to be multi-generational parents. Uh, and so um, one of the things that we've really found is that the best way to recruit those kinds of families is to look at aspects of uh, different ministries that they're already serving in and go directly to them in, in those ministries and present uh, other opportunities for them. Uh, so it's a very target market. It's not, 
as if you um, cast this really wide net um, to the general church. It tends to be people who are already engaged in this way, and then after you get that initial group, it's then word of mouth and builds from there. We have something in Arizona that we uh, use called Care Portal. Uh, it's based out of St. Louis, but it's a really interesting model with, with a lot of infrastructure that's built in. What it really does um, in, in a really nice broad way is uh, it's a way that allows a, a caseworker from the Department of Child Safety state level that's working with families and, you know, has some of those folks on the watch list that uh, are at risk of, of losing, you know, a child uh, to foster care system. And you talked about the need to get upstream. So this is one of those ways that they've kind of institutionalized um, a mechanism to uh, place faith community or other community partners into that uh, network. And so what happens is the caseworker will drop in a request. It might be a, a child is going to get pulled because there's some sort of health or hygiene issue in the home that's oftentimes you, the primary reason that kids get pulled is neglect, um, not, not as much abuse. But there's a lot of things that fall into the category of neglect. And, you know, a, a household that's not in the best shape, for example, might be one of those hygienic reasons. Well, if the caseworker can drop that request and say we need the following things and the churches or other groups that are in that network are getting this real time, they, they answer up and say, we can handle that request. So this gives more what you're talking about, which is, practically speaking, how could I get involved? It's just a beautiful infrastructure that's been developed, a great system. And in our particular case, uh, the state of Arizona, um, I sit on the foster care council for the state. And basically, we got that in with the state's blessings of this beautiful kind of public-private partnership with the faith community as well uh, to do this. And so I would say, you know, hey, who, who the leaders are in D.C. or in Maryland, Virginia, and so forth, those are things that are working. They're working in other states besides Arizona, having real impact. Um, so that might be something just if you're, you know, depending on how motivated you are, but finding some of those leaders in talking about some of these care portal models where they're having success in other places, it's a great blessing to the state because it's doing the hard work. Nobody wants, none of these workers want to see kids pulled from homes. They're just doing their job. Mm -hmm. But this creates an avenue for real people like you and me to, to say, we, we can help. Um, I kind of want to chime in on, on something that they've said about um, a lot of our families come from um, the church family ministries. We work with several different churches in Virginia, um, and we work with the family ministries of each of the churches or the adoption ministry of at least one other church. Um, so a lot of our families come from there. If In one church where we don't have a lot of families from the church itself, we do a lot of events. Um, to kind of spread the word and, and with the other foster families and church members. Um, you know, we did a trip to Mount Vernon, you know, that was well attended by a lot of the church members and, you know, our families as well. Um, one of the other things that came to mind to me is when we talk about, um, I was a foster parent also. Um, I was telling the story earlier that um, as a lawyer I represented um, I kind of got into a little niche of helping families who had their children removed. Um, I started off being um, severely adverse to CPS, or Child Protective Services, because of an experience I had um, with a family that had their child removed. And, and I turned that around and um, became an advocate where they came to me when they saw families really needed good representation in order to get their children back. Um, but as a result of that, I ended up bringing a child home with me. Um, and so I wasn't under a, um, an agency. It was just me taking this child in. 
um, as a foster child. And the church um, supported me. The church that I was in Texas at the time, so we had mega churches in, in Texas. Um, they, they surrounded me, they supported me um, because I wasn't getting a stipend and, um, you know, there, there were dental and medical needs and everything else. So a, doc, a dentist from the congregation, you know, gave us free dental care. You know, one of the medical doctors did. We were able to, um, I was able to send the child to the school there. I tried to create that same model. Um, in this area because I think it's really important that um, foster families and adoptive families have a really good support system. Um, and, and as a result of that is where other families come aboard. Once they see, you know, that they get the support, that it's not quite as bad. You know, when we have a, um, a child in a church and the child really takes to the youth minister and the youth ministry and they enjoy coming and and that helps you know with any issues that the family may have it's another support you know that they have for the child so I, I think those kinds of things um, working with the ministries within the church and um, and as uh, an example you know the foster parents that are an example help bring in people of like mind well with that um Tina actually is is leaving here tonight to to, to be present as a child is is placed in, in a foster child is placed in a home. Um, so I promised to, to make sure we ended on time and, and and got you out of here. So thank you so much to our panelists. I think you, you, all all three of you helped us um, understand a little bit more that there are practical things that we can do to be part of the solution. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean we have to um, take a child into our home, but that might be something God's calling us to do. So so. Um, thank you for opening hearts and, and providing some practical um, ways to uh, become more involved in this issue. Um, and uh, thank you to the Catholic Information Center. Anyone um, uh, who just tuned in or um, just heard about this this uh, video will be on the Catholic Information um, uh, Center's uh, Facebook page. And uh, if you check out um, my Twitter feed too, Catherine Lopez, um, will have links to it. Um, and the National Review Institute th wants to continue to work on this issue. So, so um, we'll, uh, if, if you check us out, we'll have links to resources and on National Review's webpage, um, including um, the resources that are represented here. So thank you, Taryn, Paul, and Tina. Thank you. And thank you everyone for coming tonight.